Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? One of the most infamous affairs in American military history happened on April 29th, 1944 at the height of World War II. The American Navy destroyer PT-347 was stuck on a reef off the coast of Papua New Guinea. And this wasn't any reef. It was a reef that was the demarcation line between the Southwest uh, Pacific Theater and the South Pacific Theater. And that's significant in that the two different areas were under the oversight of two different commanding officers. Admiral Nimitz had command of all naval and aviation operations in the South Pacific. And General Douglas MacArthur over all the Southwest Pacific. The two men were, as I'm sure many of you know, were notorious for their, their big egos <laughs> and notorious for their inability to work with each other. And they refused to communicate in any real effective way. And so they simply made a rule to avoid accidents. They had a demarcation line that split the Southwest Pacific from the South Pacific and they divided, divided up and this reef was the, the line there. And they simply told all their boats and all their planes, don't cross that line. That way you don't run into some trouble. Well, that worked for a while until PT-347 was disabled and drifted right across the line and got stuck in the reef on that demarcation border there. Radioed for help and uh, General MacArthur's group sent some ships to help out and then actually they tethered up to the ship and were trying to tow it out and they were working through the night and at sunrise to uh, Marine Corsair planes that were going by that reported up to Admiral Nimitz and they spied the boat and they thought it was a Japanese boat. And so they flew down to engage it and the American boats thought that they were being bombed by Japanese zero planes and so they shot back and uh, the boats actually downed one of the planes and the planes downed one of the boats. <laughs> Three sailors died and of course the pilot died and they didn't try to rescue him because they assumed he was Japanese and the one American plane fled flew the coop, so to speak, and went back to its base. And everybody thought it was over. More boats came to help pull out the American destroyer that was stuck there. But several hours later, the American plane that had survived returned, only this time with a whole squadron of American air power. Brought with it four Marine Corps airplanes, six torpedo bombers, four Hellcat fighters, eight dive bombers. It was really an entire squadron. The planes flew by first to ID the boats, and the boats recognized the planes as Americans, and so they didn't take up defensive posture, just kept trying to pull the destroyer out. Uh, but the planes did not similarly recognize the boats, so they flew by back around and engaged in their, their bombing runs. When the officers in the boats realized what happened, they gave the sound to abandon ship. They didn't want to fight back, of course, and so they abandoned ship and dispersed in the water. Um, and both boats that were left there were sunk. And that could have been the end of the story, except the American planes kept circling and began strafing the water, trying to pick off the swimmers that were getting, getting away. Um, and they did that for over an hour. Many people died. Scores were, were injured. Two men received commendation from, from the Navy. Wilbur Larson received the Navy Cross for risking his life. He kept swimming back into one of the sinking boats to rescue sailors that couldn't swim. Apparently, not everybody in the Navy can swim. 
Uh, Lieutenant James Burke also received the Navy Cross. He gave up his life vest uh, for others that couldn't swim, and he was able to tread water for 45 minutes before, before he drowned. That incident is kind of notorious in our history. It serves as a very stark reminder, a very clear reminder of the danger of what's, I think, wrongly called friendly fire. Have you ever heard a misnomer as extreme as friendly fire? Does it matter what the insignia is on the, the wing of the plane that's shooting at you or on the canopy of the boat that's firing at you? I mean, it doesn't matter what sign they have, they're shooting at you. <laughs> Such it is with friendly fire. This is the kind of exchange that James is talking about here in this passage. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. James is talking about this tendency in the Christian church to train your sights, to fix your own brothers and sisters in your scope, to paint a bullseye on the back of other believers, to zero in on them and launch your munitions at them. That's the topic of these two verses. Let me give you an outline as we go through this this morning. Four reasons to silence your slander. Four reasons to silence your slander. Now this passage here is talking specifically about how Christians shoot at each other. It's not talking about confronting sin in the church or outside the church. It's not talking about how Christians speak about those in the world and it's not talking about how those in the world speak about Christians. There are right ways and there are wrong ways to do all of those things. But that's not in James's field of vision here. What James is zeroing in on here is Christian to, to Christian communication. Brothers and sisters slandering other brothers and sisters. And he makes that point very clear in verse 11. Don't speak evil against one another. Brothers, and that the phrase is redundant, against one another and brothers. Two different words. One another, speaking of those in the congregation of Christ. Brothers, uh, Adelphoi is the Greek word. It's gender neutral, brothers or sisters. It's those that are adopted into the family of God. And that's where James starts. The first reason that you should... Silence your slander is because slander maliciously maligns brothers. Slander maliciously maligns brothers. It targets those that are in the church. Understand that in the family of God, we are all family members. We have one father. God is our father. Our brother is Jesus Christ. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. The Holy Spirit has adopted us into God's family by sealing us all with the same spirit. So the entire trinity is involved in our adoption here. Our father, our brother, and the spirit who seals us, bringing us into a family together. Slander inside the church is so serious because it targets those relationships. It acts as if you can speak against another brother or sister who has the same father you do. So it's an attack on the sovereignty of God our Father. Slander erodes the confidence we have that our brother Christ is in charge of, of us, that we're looking up to him. So it attacks the second person in the Trinity in going after the nature of Christ our brother. Slander wants to undo the work of the Holy Spirit that unites us into one family together. By saying that there are some things that are worth dividing about, even if they're false. There's some things that are work, worth putting a wedge into God's family through. And that's an attack on the, the Holy Spirit, which does unite us into one family. So slander has the whole trinity in its, its scope. It seeks to shoot at all of it. But James begins with shooting at your brothers and sisters. 
He says, do not speak evil. And that word speak evil, it's kata laleo in the, in the Greek. And kata is just a preposition. It means against. To, to go, it's a preposition. It means to conjure something, to, to go against it, to, to fell it like, a, like an axe. And laleo is an onomatopoetic word. It, I mean, if you listen to it, laleo, laleo, It just means the sound that you're making. You're, you're stammering, you're, you're blabbering on and on. You put the two together, you get blabbering or, or stammering that's against someone. Cataleo, you're speaking all, you're just making sounds, you're murmuring into the air, except you're targeting somebody with your murmurs. And that lets you know the content of the slander is not even what's important to James. It's not even if it's true or not. Because the nature of slander is the, the truthfulness isn't what's a, at play. The truthfulness almost is secondary. It's the intent. It's you weaponizing your words, harnessing your words to shoot at other believers. Now, what you say might be true, or, or maybe it's not true. Or maybe there is something true that's wrong with that other person, but you don't want to deal with that. So you spin a narrative to go after that person from a different angle. One that'll get more traction, you think. And, and you think your motives are so, so pure. After all, that person has issues. So why not slander him? Why not go after him to tear him or her down. That's the nature of slander. It maliciously maligns brothers. This kataleo, it's uniquely a biblical word. There's no real concept of that in the secular world. You know, non-believers don't have a concept of speaking against one another. That's what's called conversation in the world. (laughs) But you see this term in the Old Testament also. The Israelites in Numbers Chapter 21, we're slandering God. It's translated in the ESV from the, from the Hebrew murmuring against God. In the Septuagint, it becomes this word, kataleo. They're murmuring, stammering against God. And of course, for that, they were punished with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Earlier, Numbers 12, they slandered Moses, which God was not pleased and God punished them. Psalm 101, they slandered their neighbors. They do that in secret. This is what God forbids, Exodus 23, verse 1, you shall not spread a false report, you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. And the word malicious that that Yahweh uses there gets right to the intent. The intent behind slander is to be malicious. It's not to spread truth, it is to tear down. People do this against God, they slander God, and God knows Psalm 101, verse 5, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy, God says. I'm going to give, God knows when you slander your neighbor, he knows when you slander him. In fact, in the New Testament, slander and gossip are listed as sins along with sexual immorality, homosexuality, refusing to honor your father and your mother as in that category of sins. It's not fitting for Christians to participate when if those in the world love them and they choose to cling to them as they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And it's, it's noteworthy that often those that are, are very clear against sexual immorality and speak out against the decline of the family, they view gossip or slander often less severely. Slander has as its goal the murder of the other individual. Nobody would say that. They wouldn't say I'm saying a lie about this person or I'm exaggerating this person or I'm distorting this encounter so that they would die. But notice that it's the same motive in the heart. The heart that overflows with hatred towards your opponent. That's why I think I call slander lazy man's murder. 
The person is too weak or too cowardly to actually pick up an axe and go after somebody. To actually use their fists and beat somebody. So instead they just use their words and let the words do the work. Why slander is like poison, you know, one drop in the water supply. It doesn't kill all the water or taint all the water immediately. It has to work its way through. Or the, the chemical uh, like dye that they sometimes put in bodies to track the flow of blood. It doesn't immediately go through the body, but you can see it as it courses its way through. That's what slander is in the body of the church. It begins to work its way through until it does its poisonous work. And in the, the slanderer's mind, it ideally works like an arrow. Shoot it, say your lie or say your slander and then move along and hopefully you're out of the way by the time the arrow strikes. Slander claims its victim and the person who started it might not even be around anymore. His fingerprints are nowhere near the murder weapon. That's why slander has as its goal the murder without the blows, the blood without the beating. Maliciously maligns other believers. Number two. Slender arrogantly accuses the law. It arrogantly accuses the law. And you see this in the second part of verse 11. And the one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. Now, you might be prepared in your mind for James to go down. The one who slanders actually is fighting against God. After all, the person you're lying about is made in the image of God. And so you're really lying about the one in whose image he is. And James will get there. That'll be the fourth point. But on the way, he's got some stops. And first, he stops here. The slanderer is actually taking on the law of God itself. You think, how is that possible? The person who slanders, how are they attacking the law? Well, in order to understand that, you first have to understand what this verse is not prohibiting. It's not prohibiting calling out sin. The Bible has lots to say about calling out sin, confronting people in sin. It's a virtue. Paul, when he says farewell to the Ephesian elders, Acts 20 verse 31 says to them, be alert, know that night and day I did not cease to admonish you each with tears. Paul says, I'm a good pastor to you because I admonished you with tears. And you can think about how so much of the church world today is different than that. If a pastor said that, would you even consider it virtuous? Like a pastor's retiring farewell, I want you, you should thank me because for day and night for 20 years, I admonished all of you. You'd say, whoa, dial it down there, bucko. <laughs> Colossians 1, verse 28. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with wisdom who we can present everyone mature in Christ. Notice you present people mature in Christ by admonishing, warning. Certainly James isn't prohibiting that. Certainly James isn't talking about Matthew 18 where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go to him. Confront him in his sin. And if he doesn't respond, bring a witness. And if he doesn't respond, bring the church. And then you tell it to the church. James is certainly not contradicting his brother Jesus. After all, James is confronting the church in sin right here. Did you notice this? (laughs) This passage, he's rebuking them for sin. In fact, James will end his book. The very last paragraph of the book, James 5, that last stanza there, is about how to confront people in sin. No, he's talking about something different. And the key to understanding what he's dealing with is this phrase, passing judgment against your brother. It's a phrase that we find somewhere else in the New Testament, Romans 14. You don't need to flip there, but Romans 14, where Paul is dealing with what we call Christian gray areas. And there in Romans 14, Paul gives a couple examples. He says, 
what day of the week you worship on. Some people say only worship on Sundays. Some people say I count every day equal. Every day is fit for worship. It's a Christian gray area. The Bible has implications that the church should worship on Sunday. And obviously through church history, the church has kind of figured that out. (laughs) Nevertheless, it stands as Paul's illustration of a gray area. A gray area simply means the Bible doesn't say yes or no. It gives you principles that you apply in wisdom. That's what a gray area means. If the Bible said churches should meet at 8, 9, 30, and 11 on Sunday mornings, it'd be easy. But it doesn't. It gives us principles. And so you don't want to judge a church for meeting at 8, 9, 30, and 11, 15 like, oh, those heathens. That's a gray area. The other example Paul uses in Romans 14 is eating meat offered to idols. The New Testament says that an idol doesn't exist. It's nothing. The idol doesn't pollute the meat, so go ahead and eat it. Or on the other hand, if you feel like eating the meat helps you participate in the worship of idols, then don't eat it. Both are acceptable. The Bible doesn't say, yes, eat. The Bible doesn't say, no, don't eat. The Bible says, listen to your conscience in that kind of scenario and look out for weaker brothers and apply the biblical principles with wisdom, love, and charity. That's what it says. It's a gray area. But those are kind of quaint examples, aren't they? I mean, we've figured out we worship on Sundays, and if you go to Vons or Giant or whatever and buy meat, you don't have to ask, did you get that meat from an idol market? So you think, what are some modern examples of those kind of gray areas which we pass judgment on each other? Let me start with a funny one, because it's easier to learn with the funny one than it is with the serious ones. Because the serious ones you get offended by, but the funny ones you laugh. Okay, a funny one. A person might say, I think you should wear a suit to church on Sunday. After all, it's godly. It's godly. Amen, Nigel? I see you in a suit. Amen? Yeah, godly. And so Nigel and I look at other people that aren't wearing suits. Ryan over there, no suit. And we look at him and go, oh, that, that heathen. He doesn't take God seriously at all. No tie. And meanwhile, Ryan looks at me in a suit and goes, what's he doing wearing a suit? How are you going to reach the lost if you're wearing a suit at church? The lost aren't going to come and listen to somebody in a suit and a tie. Come on, I roll. So we judge each other. And you recognize that both of us in that are sinning. Because if the Bible said you must wear a suit with a Brooks Brother tie, stripes from right to left. Brooks Brother tie. Anyway, the other service thought that was funny. (laughs) If the Bible said you need to wear a Brooks Brother tie, this would be easy. But it doesn't. And so we apply wisdom principles and charity towards other people that decide to wear a suit or to not wear a suit. They're both fine. And this is the key point. If I pass judgment on somebody who's not then I'm the one sinning. And if somebody else passes judgment on me, then they're the one sinning. And you can go on beyond that, drinking. The Bible forbids drunkenness. The Bible also forbids abstaining from foods as if the foods themselves were evil. Those are the two extremes. And in the middle there, there's all kinds of wisdom. And some people apply those wisdom principles by saying it's best for Christians to not drink alcohol. And other people apply those principles by saying it's, it's fine for Christians to drink alcohol. It's a gray area. And that's fine. But once you start passing judgment, once the teetotaler looks at the person who drinks and says, oh my goodness, what a heathen that guy is. Or once the person who drinks looks at the teetotaler and goes, that guy's such a fundamentalist. He probably doesn't even get basic. He couldn't reason his way out of a Romans 14 box. <laughs> Both people are committing sin against the other person. Or how you raise your children. 
Some people homeschool their children. What kind of, who does that? I mean, don't you want your kids to be ready to face the world? Some people send their kids to public schools. Do they even love their kids? <laughs> Passing judgments. <laughs> or Target. Do you shop at Target? Heathen. Get your white bag with a red target and a brown bag so nobody recognizes it. <laughs> or politics. Uh-oh. You know it's possible to be a Christian and vote for a different person or a different party than you voted for? It's possible. And still be saved. As through fire, Jude says, but... <laughs> barely. And this is where slander comes in. You look at some suit-wearing, homeschooling, write-in candidate, write-in, voting person. Like, that person has nothing to say to me. But I can't go after him for wearing a suit. I can go after him for other things, though. And slander comes to life. And here's why it's an attack on the Word of God. Because you're saying, listen carefully, you're saying that the word of God is not sufficient for life and godliness. You're saying it's just missing one thing. If only the Bible had a line about wearing suits, or if only the Bible had a line about shopping at Target, this would be so easy. But it doesn't have it, so I'm going to pass judgment on people that answer those questions differently than me. Because they answer it differently, I'm passing judgment on them. I'm sitting in judgment on them. I'm doing that through my slander. It's an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. It's saying, if I was in charge of the Bible, I would add a couple more verses about this and a couple verses about that. It's an attack on the integrity of God's Word. It's an attack on the inspiration of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture, which means how, how clear it is. It's an attack on the authority of the Word of God. So what should you do if you're next to somebody who answers a gray area issue differently than you? What should you do? Well, the best case scenario would be that you assume the best motives for them. You look at somebody who acts, answers one of those questions differently than you, and you assume they have really good motives. Not the worst motives. Not like, oh, they do that because they don't love their kids. But, oh, they do that because maybe they do love the kids, or that's how they were raised. Or they have other competing motivations that I don't even know about. I'm assuming they're doing it for the best reasons. That would be the best way to respond. But that requires work. I get that. Maybe you don't want to ascribe the best motives to somebody. You don't have the effort to think through all those things. That's fine. The next thing you can do is just ignore them. It's a big world. There's Christians that make choices differently than you, and you're too lazy to attribute the best motives possible to them. Great. Just ignore them then and go on with your life. That's okay. Or you could do this. You could do something crazy and like seek them out and actually talk to them about it. I speak as one who's deranged, I know could seek them out and talk to him about it. But no, the slanderer doesn't choose any of those options. He doesn't attribute the best motives. He doesn't simply ignore. He doesn't seek them out to talk to them. Instead, the slanderer seeks other people out to tell other people about it, attributing the worst possible motives in the worst possible way. Look, if you're in a discipleship relationship with somebody, you should talk about these things. If you're discipling somebody, you should disciple them through the gray areas of life. That's kind of the point of discipleship. 
It's not that the gray areas are off limits in the Christian world. No, they are, they are on the table very much. In a discipleship relationship, it should be, in a sense, about those things. The slanderer is too lazy for the discipleship relationship and instead goes all in with attacking the person and attacking God's law. God's Bible is just missing a couple things which would clear this up. Fortunately, I can pass judgment as if they were there. So first, stop your slander because it maliciously maligns brothers. Secondly, it arrogantly accuses the law. Third, it wickedly withholds love. The core of this issue, the heart issue here is that slander withholds love. And James uses a turn of phrase here. Whoever speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. Now that phrase is, should take you back in your mind to Leviticus 19 verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your brothers, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh, the scripture says. So notice in Leviticus 19, you take off slander. You take off bearing a grudge is what God says there. And you put on love your neighbor. You're not going to slander against somebody if you love them. So love becomes the solution. Love becomes the fulfillment of the law. The slanderer elevates personal preference above love. But the law commands that love is above all. The greatest command, love the Lord your God. The second greatest command, love your neighbor as yourself. Which would put an end to slander. It would make the rest of the law superfluous, really. If you had love, you would, if you loved your neighbor, you wouldn't need the law about how big your fence has to be around your pit. If you loved your neighbor, you wouldn't need the, the law about, uh, you know, not picking all of your crops so that the hungry can come, come eat. You wouldn't need those laws if you had love. You wouldn't need to be told not to slander or speak falsely against other brothers if you loved other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that gets to the heart of this, that if you're withholding the truth, it's a form of withholding love. Ultimately, this gets to the Christian freedom we have in Christ. Christ comes to set us free, free from the power of law, free from the authority of sin, free from the condemnation of men, because we're free in Christ. Slander puts an end to that. Slander says, I have no room for the tolerance of conscience. I have no room for other believers to make decisions differently than me. I will bring them down, and that's all coming out of a heart that is not filled with love. In fact, the word in the middle of verse 11, Greek word kakas, it just means evil, grotesqueness. When you're slandering, you're speaking evil against the law. No matter how much you think you love God, if you don't love your neighbor, you're disregarding both God and his law. And that puts you in jeopardy of of hellfire, really. Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not so that you will not be judged, because with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is clearly not saying don't confront people's sin. This is one of those verses that's always taken out of context. Hey, don't judge me, bro. Only God can judge. You're allowed to confront sin lovingly, person to person, without slander. This is a verse that's saying you're passing judgment on other believers in some kind of silly gray area kind of thing. You're withholding love from other people. What's going to happen to you if God treats you with that standard? You withhold love from your neighbor. What if God withholds love from you? Then how will you turn out in the judgment? If God were to judge like you, because remember, you think you're, you're doing a better job of being God than God is. If God were to judge you with your own standard, how would you fare? The real problem here, 
the slanderer finds himself in a logically incongruent and spiritually precarious position. He's putting himself in the position of God, but he himself depends upon the mercy of God for his salvation, the same mercy he's denying others. So silence your slander because it maliciously blinds brothers. It arrogantly accuses the law. It wickedly withholds love. And then fourthly, it impotently impersonates God. Slander is the person who now starts acting as if he's God, as if he's in charge, as if he can rule over the world and add to God's law and pass judgment on other people. In fact, the most common word in these two verses here is the word condemn. It's some form of it is used six times in these two verses. And they cascade. It goes from condemning your brother to condemning the law all the way up to condemning almost God himself if you were able You think, how does the person who slanders condemn God? Because look at the end of verse 11. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. You know, we have a phrase for that. We don't want judicial activism on the bench. We don't want judges writing the law. Just follow the law you got. Don't write your own law, judge. But notice what the slanderer does. He disregards the law that says don't slander, and he starts writing his own law. Who writes laws? God writes his own law. That's the point here. So the slander, writing his own law, he is impersonating God. The truth is, though, verse 12, and what an incredible verse. There's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. There's lots of faux lawgivers. There's lots of fake lawgivers, those that think they have the power to write law, but they don't. You know, putting on a black robe and carrying a gavel does not make you a judge. Dressing like a judge for Halloween, going to Starbucks and sentencing people to jail, the police are not going to show up and take those people to jail. They'll show up and take someone to jail, but it won't be the people you sentenced. (laughs) This is what the slanderer does. He dresses up like God and goes to church and starts passing out judgment on people. But it's impotent. It has no power behind it. This is what Jesus means. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. There's great news there, isn't it? If you're the subject of slander, if people have lied against you or slandered against you or gone after your reputation, you don't need to worry about it, Jesus says. In fact, he forbids you from worrying about it. Don't worry about it. Don't fear it, Jesus says. Because it doesn't mean anything. The finger wagging and the tongue wagging and the the exalted noses of the world cannot damage you at all when it comes to eternal life. If your faith is in Jesus Christ and you're regenerate, you're on your way to heaven. When you die, you're going to go to heaven. God is not going to consult with the people who slandered you in this world. As if, oh, coming into heaven because you believe in Jesus. Actually, hold on. There's some people that said some things that aren't true about you. Let me check with them first. No. It doesn't affect you at all. Just go on with your life. If you saw the news this week, Department of Education just um, rewrote some of Title IX's regulations. This is the part of the law and regulations that govern accusations of certain kinds of misconduct on college campuses. So for the past few years, if somebody made an accusation against you on a college campus, the school would assign a victim's advocate. That victim's advocate would also be the investigator of the crime and then would be the judge 
of the crime. So you have one person siding with the victim, investigating, and also being the judge. And apparently, this has not been a very good idea. So they rewrote the regulations this week to say that, you know, you need different people. You can't have one person who is both a judge, jury, prosecutor, police, and victim. That makes sense to us because we all have limited knowledge in any situation. We can't see everything. In most situations, all we see is just our mirror. We just see ourselves. You know, the difference, though, is that God can be all of those things. You sin against God, He is the victim. God will investigate your sin. He will find you out. He will put you on trial and he will condemn you. He will prosecute you. He will arrest you, prosecute you, and condemn you. And that's why Matthew 10, 28 goes on, rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. God can do that. Now, in contrast, the slanderer cannot do that. The slanderer cannot send people to hell. The slanderer cannot sit in judgment over them. They just pretend to. They put on the airs of it. Like children in dress-up clothes pretending to be queens is what the person who slanders is like. Dressed up in his own words, pretending to be God. Desiring to rewrite God's law and now happy to impersonate God in his power to judge and condemn. God alone can do those things. Isaiah 33, verse 22. Yahweh is our judge. Listen to this verse. What an incredible verse. Yahweh is our judge. Yahweh is our lawgiver. Yahweh is our king. He is our savior. God alone is the lawgiver. God alone is the judge. God alone is the king. And God alone is the savior. That's what James means in verse 12. There's only, he's quoting Isaiah 33. There's only one lawgiver and one judge who is one savior. In the Greek, It says it this way, you judge your neighbor, who are you? Who exactly do you think you are? Slander impersonates the impartiality of God and it does so because it does not trust God to deal with his business. Slander rejects God because it rejects providence. There's more I could say on that. Let me say it this way. This is more than theoretical. Slander is an attack on God, not just because you can connect the dots in James 4. Slander is an attack on God in the most literal way possible. That Jesus, at the end of his life, after leading a sinless life, was arrested, put on trial. The only thing missing was a charge against him. They had the accused. They knew the verdict and they knew the punishment. They just needed something to charge him with. Jesus describes this, or Mark describes this, Mark 14, verse 55, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another one not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony didn't agree. I mean, they're all gathering together, and they're all slandering Jesus, but they can't get their story straight. Even when their, their lies get to the point where they almost say something that Jesus really did say, they can't even get that right. So the verdict, guilty. Sentenced to death. You know, it's God who's the father of lies. Or the devil is the father of lies. (laughs) 
It's the devil who's the father of lies. God who's the father of truth. And slander goes after God. And participates in the execution of Christ all the way to the point where Jesus says he's dying. He says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Lord, I pray that that forgiveness would be extended for us, that we see the pierced hands and feet of Christ. We hear his words in our ears echo with the cry of forgiveness. I pray for anybody in this congregation today who's convicted by this message, who sees a heart prone to lie or to slander or to exaggerate at the expense of others. I pray this conviction would set in and you would repent and that we would see that not only do you judge, but you also forgive. You are the only Savior. We're thankful for your offer and promise to save. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.